The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Calling Primary Care Partners to Action in Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, Shortening the Time to Diagnosis for Improved Patient Outcomes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash QYG860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. I'd like to welcome everybody to a discussion on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, Professor of Family and Community Medicine in the Sydney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. Now, if you are like me, you're wondering why are we talking about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to a group of clinicians who are in primary care? Because we see it infrequently. We think about it when we screen athletes. And that's been traditionally the extent of our interface with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And it turns out one of the critical things we are going to learn as we go through the next hour is one, that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a lot more common than we used to think. And two, there are new treatments available here. There have been enormous changes in the approach to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, very similar to the way we've seen changes in so many other therapeutic areas that make it important for us to understand what used to be a relatively uncommon entity for which there was a lot of disclarity about what to do that make it imperative for us to understand this better, to begin to identify it when it is there, and to share in co-management with our colleagues. One of our colleagues, who is director of the Center for Inherited Cardiovascular Disease, is going to be leading our discussion today. So it's my pleasure uh, to have joined me, Angeli Owens, who is, as I said, director of the Center for Inherited Cardiovascular Disease, Section of Heart Failure, Transplantation, and Mechanical Circulatory Support at the University of Pennsylvania in the Perelman School of Medicine in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Owens, it's, it's nice to have the opportunity to talk about this with you. Thank you, Dr. Solnick. What a mouthful that is, but I'm, it's a pleasure to be here today. So why don't we jump in and begin talking about really the underlying pathophysiology of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, as well as some things to answer the question of how common actually is it? Great. So let's start with a little bit of background about the pathophysiology. We think that sarcomeric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a genetic disease that causes left ventricular hypertrophy. And it's at its root, it's a disease of the cardiac sarcomere, which is pictured here, the contractile unit of the heart. And what we see macroscopically as a result of changes in the sarcomere is the um, development of left ventricular hypertrophy. And I'll tell you a little bit more about what that can look like. These are cartoons, of course, but they picture a normal heart on the left, and then the various phenotypes or manifestations that we can see in the left ventricle in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And as a very basic reminder, we make a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy by measuring the walls of the left ventricle. And importantly, the diagnostic threshold currently is 1.5 centimeters or 15 millimeters of left ventricular hypertrophy or wall thickness in any segment of the left ventricle. In some patients, we have what we call septal predominant left ventricular hypertrophy. That's the most common manifestation that's pictured in the middle but we also have variants of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that can affect the apex of the heart, which is pictured on the right, or the middle of the left ventricular cavity, which is pictured um, on the, in the middle. <laughs> um, there are patients that have obstruction to the flow of blood. And again, we call this left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. And what that means is that the septum is sticking out in the way 
and causing a mechanical obstruction to the flow of blood. That's pictured here in the picture that says with obstruction. And very commonly what we see is the mitral valve, the anterior leaflet comes over and touches the septum. And when that occurs, we get outflow tract obstruction. And we measure that by measuring a gradient from the left ventricle out to the aorta. And we've somewhat arbitrarily said that a gradient greater than 30 millimeters of mercury defines obstruction. And so we hemodynamically characterize patients as either having obstruction or not having obstruction. And importantly, this can be dynamic. This can vary by preload on the ventricle, whether or not someone's dehydrated, whether they've taken other medications, there can be dynamic outflow tract obstruction. And we also know that patients can progress. They can start out with relatively mild hypertrophy and no obstruction. And over the course of years, sometimes even decades, that can change. Their hypertrophy can become more severe and they can develop obstruction. We do have patients that can progress over time. They can start off as non-obstructive and then become obstructive. We follow these patients longitudinally with echocardiogram to see if anything is changing in the heart. And we even have patients who are obstructed, perhaps for years or decades, that can enter an advanced or end-stage portion of disease where they stop being obstructive and develop more end-stage heart failure. So it can go in either direction. And for that reason, we do serial monitoring with echocardiogram. And oftentimes we add in exercise testing because even if you don't have obstruction at rest, you can develop obstruction with pro provocation, and that can be Valsalva maneuver or with exercise. And Angelie, can I ask you a question there when you said exercise testing? In our world, when we think of exercise testing, it's often for coronary disease, and it's often with cardiolide or some other nuclear dye. Here, are you talking about specifically echo-based exercise tests? Absolutely. So we really need to be able to see the ventricle and to measure that gradient. And for exactly that reason, we use stress echocardiography. And we go further than that to say that we're not looking for wall motion abnormalities, which of course we have to look for for coronary disease, but rather we do the protocol for HCM to look at gradients first. And then we often secondarily look at the mitral valve and look for mitral regurgitation. Right. Thanks. So let's move on to think about how HCM can affect the population. What we know is that this is a global disease. It affects both men and women, all races, all ethnicities, and all ages. So it can occur at any point in your lifetime. And female patients, we know, are generally diagnosed later than male patients. The reason for this is not entirely clear, but we usually find that by the time women are diagnosed, on average, they're older and in a more severe state of disease, more advanced heart failure. We also know that our Black patients have more heart failure symptoms and are less often referred for tertiary care or for symptomatic management. The median age at diagnosis is in the mid-40s, and it's important to recognize that at the time of diagnosis, patients may not have any complications, but that they can develop over time. The overall prevalence of HCM is approximately 1 in 500 individuals, and again, this is worldwide, men and women, all ages. If you take into account people who are genotype positive, that means they harbor a pathogenic variant in a sarcomere gene that can lead to HCM or predisposes to HCM, that prevalence goes to approximately 1 in 250 or 1 in 300. So as you alluded to at the very beginning, this disease is much more common than what you may think. But the vast majority of people who have this condition are clinically undiagnosed. They just don't realize that they have it. Now, Angelie, can I ask you a question? When I compare this to my clinical experience, this seems incredibly more common than I am used to thinking of this as being. So when I see that sort of discrepancy, I'm always a bit 
curious about where this data comes from, which is correct, my anecdotal experience or the data. How do they they find this data would be question one. And question two is if most of these people, one in 250, don't present anyway, is it important to detect them early? Both very good questions. So the original data really comes from imaging studies, echo studies that were done in the general population and found left ventricular hypertrophy that met diagnostic criteria. The genetic studies were done more recently, so that's more recent data. And again, we have phenotyping information of what the hearts look like in many of those um, patients, but not in all. Some of them are biobank data where we're getting genetic information. The reason why it's important to make a diagnosis is that sometimes the first manifestation of disease can be the dreaded complication of sudden cardiac death. And so it's important to recognize patients, even if they're asymptomatic, so we can prevent any you know, untoward event or problem. And we also know that when we identify one individual, it is a genetic condition that can be passed on from generation to generation. So again, there are other people that may be at risk that need to be identified so we can prevent a problem. Makes sense. So question that I would have for you and relevant to our audience is what role do we in primary care play in the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? So in this study that was done by the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, which is a patient organization, they did a survey of their population, all patients diagnosed with HCM, and about a third of them who were symptomatic initially sought care from a primary care professional. Very few of them, you know, in the range of 3 to 13%, really presented knowing that they had a family member with HCM or listed a family history as their reason for seeking a medical appointment. So most of them came to attention because of some sort of symptom. There are also a number of patients who are completely asymptomatic, and they can be difficult to identify. Here's a study that I thought was interesting that we did not too long ago, showing that approximately 60% of patients who eventually got a diagnosis of obstructive HCM really had quite a long course, um, sometimes spanning years, to make a correct diagnosis. And in our clinic, our HCM clinic, what we typically do is start at the beginning with each patient. We go through their history, starting in childhood. It's extremely common that we hear patients had some sort of exercise intolerance, inability to keep up with their peers as a child, a murmur that was diagnosed but never looked into further, or that was um, called mitral valve prolapse without an echo. They've been diagnosed with asthma, palpitations, anxiety, AFib, but never an underlying diagnosis of cardiomyopathy that can bring together what all of those symptoms may be. So it's pretty common that patients go to the ER, they go to their primary doctor, they even go to cardiologist um, before they get a definitive diagnosis. When we look at the natural history of HCM, again, we see similar things that patients can present with AFib in this international share registry, which is a cohort of patients with HCM all over the world, up to 20 to 25% at some point in their life have AFib. So I would say that's a, a red flag if you're in primary care clinic and you're seeing a younger person or even an older person with AFib not to just make the diagnosis of AFib, but really look for an underlying cardiomyopathy that may be driving it. We have patients that present with heart failure symptoms. The minority, as you can see here, get advanced heart failure, but there's plenty of people with New York Heart Station functional class two symptoms. Um, about 18% in their lifetime need invasive therapy for LV outflow tract obstruction. And fortunately, a small number of patients or percentage really go on to have the dreaded complication of sudden cardiac death or need for a transplant or a VAD. So these are the complications that we look for, but we may be finding patients earlier in the primary care clinic that may present with just symptoms that are nonspecific. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into our patients. Yeah, I think we're going to be able to kind of tease that out a bit as we talk about these three patients. But it strikes me that when someone's coming in with symptoms of shortness of breath, uh, particularly if they're not older, 
whatever that means. Um, we, we often think of things like asthma, but I think more and more over the last maybe five years and the increase in our knowledge about uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is very common, I think we're going to echo more often sooner. And, and that's a good thing because we need to, in every, we always want to expand our differential before landing on something. And I think we're going to talk about this a little more, the di different aspects of it, as we talk about our three patients. And they are Corbin, who's 17 years old, football team physician, thought he heard a murmur during the preseason sports physical. We'll hear more about him uh, in a moment. Delia, uh, 67 years old, she's a new patient, and she wasn't happy with the care she received from another doctor. And Edward, 37, again, a new patient. And he gets winded more easily than running his usual route. Uh, now, I'd have bet Edward had exercise-induced asthma from the start, given his age and description. We'll see. Great. So let's jump into Corbin. So Corbin is 17 years old, does not carry any uh, medical history. When you see him in the office on physical exam, his heart rate is in the high 50s. His heart rate is regular. His blood pressure is normal at 102 over 64. He has clear lungs with no wheezes, no rawls, but you do auscultate a murmur, a systolic ejection murmur, and it's noticeable when he goes from st to standing from squatting. Now, I don't know how often you're doing a squat to stand in your clinic. Neil. I actually am, and I'll, t I'll tell you, because we see a lot of young athletes, and it seems to me a lot of particularly thin individuals who are in their teens have just uh, innocent murmurs. And there's this question of, you know, should you, you do maneuvers? I'll be interested in hearing from you how accurate they are. But I find it hard to send everyone with a tiny little murmur on for an echocardiogram. Uh, I actually do squatting and standing, which I find to be more reliable than a Valsalva because a Valsalva has so many different parts to it. The big inspiration, holding your breath, pushing out. Uh, and, and so I stay in shape just for this reason. I do squats as part of my daily workout so I can help a patient balance up and down. And I found this, I found it anecdotally to be reliable. Yeah, that, that's great. And I'm glad that you're training in order to do your squat to standing <laughs> clinic. As I've gotten older, I find myself doing less of this and more of the Valsalva, um, but really any maneuver that will uh, decrease preload can exacerbate an outflow tract murmur. And that's really what we're looking for here is the murmur of outflow tract obstruction, which will worsen um, if you decrease preload and also will worsen if you decrease afterload, which is a little harder to do in the clinic. Otherwise, importantly, a multi-generation family history was done in this patient. And again, Neil, I don't know in primary care clinic, how much time do you have to do a multi-generation family history? Yeah, I'm not going to answer that one. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> Even in cardiology clinic, prior to having our genetic cardiomyopathy clinic, it's difficult to take a multi-generation family history. So I would encourage you really to target that to people where you are concerned that there may be a problem, there may be a family history of cardiomyopathy to ask a few questions. And in this case, this young man's father died at age 51 from a quote, cardiac condition, not otherwise specified. An uncle died at age 47 from unknown causes. And his mother, his sister, and brother are healthy. So I would mark that in the you know, somewhat suspicious category when you see this young man. Yeah, that really leads to the questions that you've begun to answer is when should we be suspecting HCM? So I would say it, it depends on a number of factors, but certainly with personal history, we'll talk and focus a bit on symptoms. The symptoms of HCM can be nonspecific. They're cardiopulmonary in nature and they can represent an overlap with other cardiopulmonary conditions, some of which we've mentioned, like asthma or angina or a number of other things. The most common thing we usually see is exertional dyspnea or effort intolerance. We can see dizziness. 
We can certainly see syncope. Syncope that is worrisome is syncope that occurs surrounding exertion. So during exertion, just after exertion, that would be worrisome. Chest discomfort that can be sort of typical or atypical, meaning it can happen at rest, it can happen with exertion, palpitations. And one of the hallmarks of HCM is that you might get a patient that says that their symptoms vary day to day. So as opposed to a fixed obstructive coronary lesion, which every time they do those two flights of stairs, they get the anginal pain. With HCM, there are good days and bad days, and it may depend on hydration status. It may depend on other loading conditions. And so you might find patients say, well, I'm usually pretty good, but there's all, you know, there's times where I'm worse. On physical exam, as we talked about, that systolic ejection murmur that augments with Valsalva, um, indicative outflow tract obstruction would be a worrisome feature, an abnormal EKG, an arrhythmia that's been identified. And of course, on the family history, this is an autosomal dominant condition. So we expect to see generation after generation that there may be affected individuals. And we're really focusing on early heart failure, strokes, unexpected or sudden deaths when we do a history. If there's an autopsy, try to get a hold of it. And again, some of this can be passed on to the specialist if this patient goes in that direction. But if there's an autopsy, we always like to see it. And an important take-home point, HCM can be completely asymptomatic. And that's why with a prevalence of one in 500, we don't have everyone diagnosed. There are many undiagnosed and asymptomatic people. So lack of symptoms shouldn't uh, lead you to believe that they don't have the condition. So a little more on the reported frequency of symptoms. We started to talk about this already, but most patients, the most common reported symptom is exertional dyspnea or shortness of breath. And you can see here the percentages um, again, this was an HCMA uh, Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association patient advocacy group survey. And symptoms fluctuate with activity, with temperature. We frequently find patients with HCM feel worse in the summertime, times where it's very humid. After a big meal, that's a classic symptom for obstructive HCM is that they get worse after they've eaten, blood is diverted to the stomach to digest the food, the heart becomes less full, and the obstruction worsens. Alcohol, which is a diuretic and at times a vasodilator, again, can make patients worse. So sort of the perfect storm is I got in a hot tub, I drank a few glasses of wine, I took my Viagra, I've got terrible symptoms, and I might pass out. So that's kind of the perfect storm. So thinking about optimal ways to, to screen patients, let's get back to Corbin just for a minute. Corbin, as you remember, is our athlete who was found to have a murmur. This is not the focus of our discussion today, but this is a meta-analysis that was done about screening um, athletes and the number that were found to have a potentially lethal or important cardiovascular condition. Um, in this meta-analysis was one in 294 athletes, and you can see listed here the diagnoses that were found with about 10 or 11% having hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And when you're looking at this study, they found that the 12-lead EKG was the most effective screening strategy. And I'll just remind you that the false positive and false negative rates depend on the underlying prevalence of the disease. This was a mixed population. But in this study, at least, EKG was the most effective screening strategy. Neil, is that predominantly what you're using in your clinic? Yeah, I think it varies across the country by both region and school uh, as for as with regard to whether or not EKG screening is done. That's certainly not the standard in schools across the country, though in kind of college sports and NCAA sports, I, I believe that is the standard. Yeah, and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a moving target, still a lot of controversy in this area. Um, and the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is actually putting through legislation to think about how we might revisit screening of young people and adding in that critical family history. So I would say if you do have time to ask one or two more questions, a good one would be, is there anyone in the family who has heart disease? And if so, follow up to see what that might be. So here's Corbin. Um, here's his EKG. Neil, what do you think about this? I mean, this this is uh, un, unimpressive. It's a normal EKG. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. The important point is that doesn't reassure us. I just said what I'll bet you are going to say because- <laughs> The words right out of my mouth. <laughs> he still has a heart murmur and he still has a family history. Absolutely. So a normal EKG does not rule out HCM. Just as you said, when you're suspicious and someone has an abnormal physical exam, an abnormal family history, then you really want to move to the next step. And in order to make a diagnosis of HCM, that means that you have to accurately visualize and measure the left ventricular wall thickness. And we start with transthoracic echo. That's the workhorse of HCM. We use it for diagnosis. We use it for ongoing management. We talked about stress echo. We look, we look at long-term longitudinal follow-up. It's really our workhorse. So transthoracic echo would be the next test that's needed. And if you're not able to identify the walls, then you would move to MRI. The other thing we do in ECHO, as we mentioned earlier, is we look at that kind of hemodynamic fork in the road. How do we classify patients hemodynamically? Do they have a resting LV outflow tract obstruction? If so, we put in the category of obstructive HCM. If they don't have resting obstruction, then we do the provocative maneuver with the, either Valsalva or exercise to see if we can provoke LV outflow tract obstruction. And if they still don't have obstruction, then we classify them as non-obstructive HCM. So let's take a look here at, at Corbin's imaging. What do you think about this? It looks kind of like a snowstorm. <laughs> you really can't see the endocardial border. So again, in order to make a diagnosis or to exclude a cardiomyopathy like HCM, you really need to visualize the heart accurately. In HCM, we have to be able to measure the wall thickness accurately. And in this situation, I would say you're not able to do that. And so your next step would be to get an MRI. And here you can see pictured on the right the MRI. And in the MRI, you can really visualize the endocardial border, which is denoted by the arrows. And you can see that there is asymmetric hypertrophy. That is one of the classic hallmarks of HCM, is that you don't have concentric hypertrophy. You can, but you usually have some degree of asymmetry. And that's what we're seeing here with the apex or the tip of the heart where the arrows are showing hypertrophy. Can I ask you a question? I usually don't look at imaging. I get an echo report. So if I have a 17-year-old, and because of his family history, I would probably be having him see one of the cardiologists. But let's say he didn't have that concerning family history. Will the echo report tell me that the wall has imprecision? Because I'm not actually looking at the images. Yes. What we typically will find, if you write in, I'm doing this echo to rule out hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's important so that the person reading the echo knows what the suspicion is for or family history of, of cardiac disease or family history of sudden death so that they know where to train their eye. Then usually what the report will say is normal left ventricular size, normal ejection fraction, unable to accurately measure wall thickness or poor endocardial definition. That would be your clue or your hint that they're not seeing the walls adequately. So helpful. So that, that's, that's a good thing for us to remember to do. And then you also want to go through and look at, if they do give you a wall thickness, what that wall thickness is. And remember the diagnostic criteria, at least currently, greater than, one point, greater than or equal to 1.5 centimeters anywhere in the left ventricle in someone who is a pro-brand or the first person with disease. If you have a family history of HCM or you're known to carry a pathogenic variant in your DNA that predisposes to HCM, we remove or reduce that diagnostic threshold down to 1.3 centimeters. So that's another important thing to remember. Where, where does genetic testing fit in? So genetic testing really starts with a patient who's affected with the disease, and this is an important point. So if you have a family where there's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy running in the family, you want to start your genetic testing in someone who has evidence of disease on their echo, on their MRI, because you know that that patient 
should carry the pathogenic variant. If there's one to be found, the person who has disease is the one you want to start with. And generally speaking, we start in the in the family with the patient who with the youngest age of onset or the most severe phenotype. And that's the individual we start genetic testing in. We have genetic counselors who are embedded in our clinic. These professionals are amazing at taking multi-generation family histories in doing both the pre- and post-test counseling, talking to patients about the um, risks and benefits of doing genetic testing. So I highly encourage you to uh, refer a patient on unless you have the skill set necessary to do the pre- and post-test counseling. Um, And the Mayo Clinic came up with the genotype prediction score, and in their score, Corbin would uh, have a prediction of score of three based on younger age, his LV wall thickness, and his family history of sudden death, which translates into a 60% yield of finding a positive genetic uh, variant, which is a very good yield. The yield, I would say, ranges anywhere from you know 20% up to 75%, depending on the patient's characteristics, family history, et cetera. So genotyping was performed in this patient, and a pathogenic or what we call disease-causing variant was found in a gene called TPM1. So Corbin was positive. Who else in his family gets tested? So once we have a proband, the person in the family who presents with disease, who gets genetic testing, and we find a disease-causing variant, Then we do cascade screening of family members. This is where we can take unaffected but at-risk family members. And generally, we start with first-degree family members um, to start. That would be parents, siblings, children if they have them. And we would do two things. One, clinical screening. That means we check everyone's heart with EKG, echo for any signs of disease. If they do not have any signs of disease, then we can do the genetic testing as risk stratification. And when we do genetic testing, we're only looking for the one pathogenic or disease-causing variant that was found in the proband. That's the variant that runs through the family, 50-50 chance, because it's autosomal dominant, of getting it from mom or dad, passing it on to each child. And if you do carry that variant, the pathogenic variant, even if your heart's currently normal, we know you're at risk to develop disease in the future. And those are people that undergo ongoing clinical screening every few years to see if they develop any signs of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. On the other hand, 50-50 chance, if you do not receive the pathogenic variant, we don't think you're going to develop hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in your lifetime, and you can be dismissed from screening. So you don't have to get your heart checked. And you also can't pass it on to the next generation if you don't have it. So again, that entire branch of the family going forward is now cleared. And so it's it's a big branch point um, in terms of risk stratification. And that's how we use the genetic testing. This is so helpful, Angelie, because I, I think this really is a new concept for most of us, that the advantage of finding uh, the ability to genetically test, finding who's affected and particularly then the ability to follow them over time longitudinally to see at an early stage when they're developing uh, visible disease. Absolutely. Now, say there's a case where we test the proband like Corbin and we don't find a pathogenic variant. That doesn't mean that this isn't genetic disease. It just means that we're not smart enough to identify the pathogenic variant. So when you see a family history where there's suspicious or known disease going from generation to generation, as I would argue Corbin's family history is, then you tell everyone in the family, we don't have a variant, a marker that we can use to risk stratify everybody. So what we have to revert to is ongoing lifelong clinical screening, which means every few years, You come back and get your heart checked to make sure that you don't have signs of disease. And as I've highlighted here in the table, that screening or surveillance interval should be every year or so in children and adolescents. We know adolescence is a high-risk period to develop disease, particularly in kids who are very active in competitive sports. They really need to be getting their heart checked every year or so. 
Once you become an adult, if you're not showing any signs of disease, we space out that screening interval to every three to five years, depending on what your heart looks like. But this is lifelong screening. And so that's an important takeaway point that we often see kind of, uh, you know, misconstrued in, in the patients that come to us as they say, well, my dad died suddenly, we all got our hearts checked. They told us we were fine and off we went. And 15 years later, someone's showing up with disease and another bad outcome. So to prevent that, we check everyone's heart. Really great point. One of the first things that we do when we meet patients in our HCM clinic who have a new diagnosis of HCM is to reassure them that the outlook for HCM has improved dramatically with contemporary treatments. You can see pictured here the early HCM referral cohorts prior to these treatments with a 3 to 6% per year mortality. Um, but now we're down to 0.5% per year, which is pretty close to the general population. And that's with treatments such as ICDs to prevent sudden death, heart transplant for advanced heart failure, and better resuscitation of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So again, this doesn't mean that we tell people, ignore this condition and go away forever, but nor do we tell them that this is a death sentence and that you've got to stop everything that you're doing, including exercise. We really counsel them that there are things that we're going to watch for, arrhythmias, AFib, development of obstruction or heart failure, and that those are really the things that we're going to focus on as we watch patients. So it's pretty amazing. The you know one of the tenets to early detection is that early detection yields a better outcome than waiting till the disease is manifest. And are there some things we can do for people who are genotype positive? So there was an interesting phase two study, and I've, I have some of the results pictured here. This was the Vanish trial funded by the NIH. It included about 170 patients who were both adults and children as young as age eight who had early stage sarcomeric HCM. So they had pathogenic variants in a sarcomere gene. The two most common, commonly mutated genes are myosin heavy chain and myosin binding protein C. And these were patients who the vast majority were asymptomatic and the mean LV wall thickness was 1.7 centimeters. So pretty early stage disease. And they randomized patients to either valsartan or placebo. And the primary outcome was really an interesting one here. It was a composite of a number of structural and functional endpoints or, or biomarkers included LV wall thickness, LV mass. We looked at antitropobian B and troponin, I'm trying to put the two together. Um, and what we saw in the group of patients who received Valsartan is that they had an improvement in that composite score, showing that their hearts looked a bit better after two years on Valsartan. So again, this may be a reason why it's important to know your genotype, because if you're someone with early stage sarcomeric HCM, we may be able to start a therapy that can mitigate progression of disease, which is ultimately what we want to do. Further study is needed. This was a you know relatively small group, but hopeful that we will have mitigating strategies. So let's now talk more about Delia. Delia is a 67-year-old woman who's a new patient to the office. She has a history of obesity and GERD. She was not satisfied with the care she received from her previous doctor. Her recent medical history, she had two emergency room visits in the last 12 months for palpitations and chest pain. She had a cardiac cath at her local hospital. Previous diagnoses that she had included a distant history of anxiety and a history of exercise-induced asthma at age 50 that didn't respond to first and second line asthma medicines. That should alert us because that's unusual. Her current lab results were an elevated, high sensitive, highly sensitive troponin. Her coronary arteries on cath were normal. Physical exam showed a heart rate of 70. Pulse was regular. Blood pressure 142 over 91. BMI of 31, her lungs were clear, no wheezing, no rouse, and current medicines included amiprazole and cimetidine. Your thoughts, Angela? This is a pretty typical patient, a patient that when we take that lifelong history, there were some signs early on that there may be something going on from a cardiac status, whether that's palpitations 
or some exercise-induced shortness of breath. Then they go through the medical system, presenting here and there with chest pain, with palpitations, a few ER visits. And we often see that patients are either underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed with other cardiopulmonary, um, you know, diagnoses. So exercise-induced asthma, again, as we can, as we've talked about, can mimic um, HCM. They can overlap mitral valve prolapse because of the murmur and the relatively common nature of mitral valve prolapse. Again, we see that overlap and misdiagnosis a lot as well as the innocent heart murmur. And if I had a penny for every woman who were told that they were having an anxiety attack or they were having a, a panic attack because of palpitations, it's sometimes very difficult to undo the sensation of palpitations then making you feel like something is wrong and anxious. So I really encourage people to have a low threshold to send a Holter monitor, really look for a correlation between an arrhythmia and the patient's symptoms before we kind of write it off as anxiety. But I'll echo that, <laughs> because, well, when you think about it, so anxiety affects roughly 10 to 15% of the population, and anxiety doesn't protect from heart disease. So the two can both be true at the same time, as well as someone's symptoms may be misconstrued. And we, we've definitely seen that. And anxiety is something that should be a rule in. It sounds like, looks like, has all the other manifestations. And when it all uncertain, yeah, you, 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 you get a halter, you get an echo, you do need to make sure. Absolutely. So here's Delia, here's her EKG, which you can see has evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy by voltage criteria, asymmetric T-wave inversion, I'll just call to your attention, you know, leads one, lead AVL, that kind of asymmetric um, or biphasic T-wave inversion. Um, and again, this is a suspicious EKG because it has signs of left ventricular hypertrophy. Um, on the right there is a box just showing you what we typically see in patients who have HCM on their EKGs. And again, the classic uh, repolarization abnormalities with ST depression and asymmetric T-wave inversion. Left atrial abnormality is common in patients with HCM. And occasionally we'll get sort of nonspecific ST T-wave changes or ST depression we can also get non-pathologic Q waves. So these are all things, if you see them on an EKG, that should raise your suspicion um, that this patient may have HCM. So here's Delia's echo, but what you're seeing is septal hypertrophy. So the septum is thickened, and we're showing a picture of the mitral valve coming over and touching the septum on the left-handed picture. And what that results in is asymmetric mitral regurgitation and outflow tract obstruction. And this is a patient where you would hear that classic systolic ejection murmur because of these abnormalities. Um, we often also see a hyperdynamic ejection fraction. So that's another thing when you're reading that echo report. If you're getting ejection fraction in the 70, 75, 80 range, that's a hyperdynamic ventricle, which is typically what we see in HCM. This patient has class three heart failure symptoms and a gradient of greater than 80 millimeters of mercury. So again, 30 is the diagnostic threshold for obstruction. Anything over 50 millimeters of mercury, we consider severe obstruction. And this patient had severe obstructive HCM. So let's talk a little bit about the treatments. And again, this isn't the focus of today's talk, but we do have a risk of sudden death. And for those patients who are deemed to be at high risk, we use an ICD to protect them against sudden death. There is a risk of symptomatic outflow tract obstruction. And for those patients, we use a combination of starting with AV nodal blockers like beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. Second line therapy is the antiarrhythmic medication disopyramide, which also has negative inotropic properties. And for patients who remain severely symptomatic and obstructed, we have invasive therapies. Septal myectomy is open heart surgery. Alcohol ablation is a catheter-based technique. Both of those can reduce LV outflow tract obstruction. And we have a new class of medications called cardiac myosin inhibitors. The cardiac myosin inhibitors are different because they target the underlying problem with HCM. 
under unlike the beta blockers or calcium blockers, which as you know, were developed for other reasons and kind of repurposed for HCM, the cardiac myosin inhibitor class of medications were developed to treat HCM. And so they work in a targeted mechanism, they're pills, and they can be used in combination with beta blockers or calcium blockers. For patients with advanced heart failure, and they move towards reduced ejection fraction, which in HCM is a threshold of 50%, because most of these ventricles are hyperdynamic. If you get to below 50, we consider you to be an advanced heart failure, and we change our um, therapies accordingly. And a high risk of atrial fibrillation and potentially stroke. So for those patients, antiarrhythmics, anticoagulation, and consideration of ablation. So a little bit more about the two cardiac myosin inhibitors. The first is called Mavicamptin. This is a first-in-class medication that received FDA approval in 2022. And the next-in-class agent called Afficamptin, which is still in clinical trials. So what do you need to know about the cardiac myosin inhibitor as a primary care doctor? Um, that the first medication is FDA approved, and we use it for patients who have symptomatic obstructive HCM. And what the pivotal trial showed was that this drug decreases the degree of obstruction, so it decreases the gradient. It improves exercise tolerance that was tested by VO2 stress testing, improves symptoms of shortness of breath, chest pain, palpitations, and it decreases the need for those invasive therapies, the septomyectomy, alcohol ablation, And very importantly, it improves quality of life, which is what we're really after in our patients with obstructive HCM. Afficantin, which is the next in class agent, as I mentioned, is still in clinical trials. So one, I think the most important thing we in primary care need to be aware of now with regard to treatment is that this class of of new class of treatment, cardiac myosin inhibitors, are available and really do, from the data you shared, make a big difference. Anything else we need to know? The other things we need to know are that there are drug-drug interactions that are important and need to be managed in conjunction with the primary care team. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in the slides to come. So first, let's show you Delia's echo. This is a repeat echo after being treated for nine months on a cardiac myosin inhibitor. And we saw improvements in NYHA functional class, marked improvement in her gradient from 80 down to nine, and improvements in mitral regurgitation. So her heart looked better and she felt better. The drug-drug interactions that can occur, this drug is um, metabolized through the cytochrome P450 uh, system. And there are drug-drug interactions that are important with very commonly used medications, including proton pump inhibitors and namely omeprazole. So any patient who is on omeprazole, we need to switch to an alternative um, proton pump inhibitor. And also drugs like fluconazole, amiodarone, other antibiotics. So very common medications can have significant drug-drug interactions. So Currently, this drug is prescribed and dispensed only by specialty pharmacies and requires monitoring every month for new drugs. So we ask our primary care doctors to be in touch with us, in communication with us and the patient if a new medication is prescribed so they can be checked for any significant drug-drug interactions. The, um, The risk of taking a cardiac myosin inhibitor is that it works on contractility. So we take a heart that's squeezing too forcefully, which is what we normally see in HCM, and we move it down a notch. So it's beating more normally and relaxing more normally. But the risk of that mechanism of action is that if you get too much drug, the heart may not be forcefully enough. So there's a black box warning from the FDA due to the risk of systolic heart failure. And for that reason, we monitor the ejection fraction serially. So in patients who start this drug, they get six to seven echoes in the first year of treatment. So a lot of echoes really focusing on what the ejection fraction is and what the gradient is. So these patients are um, you know, very tight into the medical system for that first year or so as they're getting on drug and having it titrated. 
where we really need our help and partnership with our primary care physicians is in managing very common comorbidities that we see in our HCM patients. These include hypertension, sleep apnea, obesity, concomitant coronary disease, and atrial fibrillation. And again, you know, these are very common comorbidities. They make the HCM symptoms worse, and we need uh, help in really aggressively targeting these comorbidities. So we have Edward here as our third and final case. He's 37 years of age. He's a new patient. He's getting winded a little more easily when running than his usual route. We'd be thinking ordinarily of uh, exercise-induced asthma. He would be graded by activity, New York Heart Association, functional class two, heart rate of 67, normal blood pressure, 129 over 77, BMI 28. His lungs are clear and auscultation. He has a regular rate of rhythm and no murmurs or gallops. He's an LDL of 107 and a hematocrit of 47. He below at a 16 and he is on nothing relevant for medicines. So here's Edward's ECG, which again has voltage criteria for left ventricular hypertrophy and his echo, which shows a septal wall thickness of 2.6 centimeters. So again, above the diagnostic threshold and with provocation, his gradient is only five. So we would put him in the non-obstructive category because he does not have a high gradient. And his lab testing showed an NC-PRO BNP that's elevated at about 1,300. So when we think about, you know, what this patient falls into, he would have non-obstructive HCM. And we think about for every patient with HCM, if they're at risk for sudden death, if they're at risk for AFib, if they're at risk for heart failure. So let's start with sudden death. There are criteria that we use, and I won't go into great detail, but the major markers are listed on the left. And each time we visit a patient, we look and see, are they meeting any of these high-risk features? If they are, we consider a prophylactic defibrillator. And this is an ongoing assessment because things can change over time. We look for whether or not patients are at risk to develop atrial fibrillation, which is common in this population. There is a new scoring system that's published pretty recently. I have pictured here um, the risk of AFib based on the score the parameters that go into the score. The most important take-home point for a primary care physician, we use anticoagulation regardless of the CHADS2 VAS score in this population. HCM increases risk for stroke. We use DOAX as first-line therapy regardless of CHADS VAS score. And finally, we think about, are you at risk to develop heart failure? This is a harder question. We look at the ejection fraction. We look at advanced echo techniques and MRI techniques to really understand which patients may be at risk to develop heart failure. Angela, I think the toughest question that I imagine encountering now that we're doing a lot more echoes looking for HEFPEF is how do you differentiate when the echo results come back from routine HEFPEF that's so common that people that I see with diabetes, obesity, hypertension versus HCM? This is a great question and one that we struggle with even in cardiovascular clinics. So I think we've entered an area where we have targeted therapies. And so it's really um, imperative for us to dig deeper and understand what's causing hypertrophy. So if you see a wall thickness greater than 1.5 centimeters above that diagnostic threshold, do a deeper dive. If you're seeing hypercontractility, that may suggest HCM. If you're seeing asymmetric hypertrophy, that may suggest HCM. Um, we do have hypertensive cardiomyopathy that's pretty common. That's usually more concentric hypertrophy and less magnitude of thickness, so in the 12 to 14 millimeter range. If you are seeing a patient with a wall thickness greater than two centimeters, that's a red flag that there is something pathologic going on that's serious and needs to be looked into. We also look at extra cardiac manifestations, lab values, MRI features, other things that can tell us, is this HCM or is this another cardiomyopathy or HEFPEF? Pictured here is a chart that looks at both cardiac and extra cardiac manifestations of things that we call phenocopies or mimics of HCM. And the most notable one here is amyloid. As you all know, we have targeted treatments for amyloid. It's important that we make the correct diagnosis. 
Genetic testing can also be very helpful to look for pathogenic variants in the genes that are listed here that can lead you to a diagnosis. And the reason we care is that the treatments differ by cause. And listed here are, are a number of sort of HEFPEF um, conditions that go under that umbrella where the ejection fraction is normal and patients have signs of heart failure and all the different targeted therapies that we now have available. So are there any cardiac myosin inhibitors that are currently in the pipeline? Yes. So as I mentioned, we have Mavicamptin, that's FDA approved for obstructive HCM, but there's ongoing trials for non-obstructive HCM. And we have the next-in-class agent, Afficamptin, that's just completed their phase three trial for obstructive HCM and has ongoing trials for non-obstructive HCM. So there's a lot on the horizon um, that we'll be able to find out in the next few years. Exciting. Um, a question that we always refer for, but always wonder about is, can someone exercise if they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? This is a great question and one that our primary care doctors and general cardiologists get a lot. And the answer is yes, most people with HCM can exercise safely. This is mild to moderate aerobic activity with a warm up and a cool down. We want to gradually increase the intensity if someone has not been um, accustomed to exercising. And this is for your average bear. This is not for your highly competitive athlete. If you have a competitive athlete, this requires specialty evaluation, care at an HCM center, really to go through the risks and benefits of um, competitive exercise. So refer those patients to a comprehensive center. And then, of course, advice about other risk factor management. This is critically important. So we really rely on partnership with our PCPs to help us with managing lipid profiles, hypertension. We don't want to give that heart any other reason to become thick. So blood pressure manage management is of paramount importance. We want our patients to remain healthy from a cardiovascular standpoint, including moderate exercise and weight management. Edward is diagnosed with uh, NHCM with a BMI of 28, blood pressure 129 over 77, LDL of 107. What medicine should be started? So the answer in this case, first-line therapy for someone with non-obstructive HCM who's symptomatic with dyspion on, uh, exertion, NYHA class 2, would be starting a beta blocker. So that would be first-line therapy for this patient. Um, and then you can refer to an HCM center for further evaluation. So, Angela, uh, how, what are your suggestions just bringing it all together? Where do we as primary care clinicians and you in a specialty HCM center fit in together managing the patient? So we frequently do shared care, and I think that's really of critical importance. That's what the patients prefer, and that's what we prefer is good open lines of communication. We often find that HCM patients have a number of medical professionals on their team. That can be the HCM team, also the primary care doctor. Um, some of them have an electrophysiologist or a general cardiologist, and it's really important that we work together a multidisciplinary management with good communication. There are HCM centers located across the country. I have pictured here a map of them. If you're in the you know the middle of the country, it may be hard to get to an HCM center. Um, so we rely on you know local cardiologists and referring patients who need advanced management. Um, there's collaboration between centers, as I mentioned, that's really critically important. And it's important that we all uh, work together and communicate together. And any sense of what happens in between visits to your specialty center? Well, interestingly, the Mayo Clinic published their experience to say that patients who were followed at an HCM center and then were returned to the community away from specialty care we're a particularly high-risk group. So if you see one of those patients in your clinic, they've just come out from an admission or from a specialized procedure, they are at a high risk for having a complication. Keep your eye closely on them and make sure that they're coming back for specialty care. So key takeaways from our hour today. The first is that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most common genetic cause of cardiomyopathy. Um, but it is frequently underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed. It's more common than you might think. 
cardiac imaging is critical. In order to make a diagnosis, we have to measure the wall thickness accurately, either by echo or if needed by MRI. First degree family members need clinical screening to look for any signs of HCM. That's with EKG, echo, physical exam. And medical and surgical treatments are available. And there are more novel therapies in development. The first um, novel therapy is the cardiac myosin inhibitor. And primary care clinicians can help us with screening, with care coordination, with diagnosis, and importantly, with treating comorbidities that are common and have the potential to worsen HCM symptoms. And those include comorbidities like hypertension, dyslipidemia, and sleep apnea. Dr. Angeli Owens, this has been so helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. It's my pleasure. I know I've learned a lot. I believe everyone who's joined us today for this presentation have learned a lot that's relevant to us. And Dr. Owens, you've made this very relevant. Uh, I thank everybody for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash QYG860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb.